Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. This week, we decided to go with a well-known favorite, 1987's Hellraiser by the inevitable Clive Barker. This was Clive Barker's very first film outing, actually. He had never, uh, he'd like kind of directed a couple shorts before this, but nothing of consequence. So he was really a first-time director with this movie. He was upset, actually, that a couple of films that had been made before this of his own material turned out really lousy. One of those is Rawhead Rex. Have you ever seen that one? No. No, I've heard about it, though. Oh, God, I've heard it's a nightmare. I, I mean, and not in a good way. <laughs> I've right. heard it's a terrible movie. So uh, he decided to take things into his own hands, and he wrote and directed Hellraiser. And New World uh, Pictures, the company that Roger Corman founded. Wait, is that right? Roger Corman did yeah. New World? Yeah, he did. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he did. I mean, he's, he did sell it, uh, and it went through a couple different hands after a while. Uh, at the time this was made... It may have been out of his hands for a year or two. But yeah, no, he started New World with his wife after American International Pictures. Anyway, yeah, so New World gave him like 900000 for this. And uh, he said that's okay because it's a kind of simple story. It all pretty much takes place in one house. And so uh, we'll do what we can with that. And then later on, in order to beef it up, once the studio liked what they saw, they gave him, I think, twenty-five grand more to up some of the special effects a little bit. It was a $1 million movie. It made $20 million in the theater. It was a bit of a success and also propelled, uh, what are we up to, like five or six sequels now? Oh, no, more than that, I think, like really? eight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so uh, the franchise has moved on, and like we like to do on this show, we don't really want to do the sequels so much until we do the original. So here we are revisiting Hellraiser. Craig, I had seen this movie before. How about you? What's your history with this film? Gosh, I have seen it, I don't know how many times, multiple times. Really? And when, yeah, and when we decided to do this, I wasn't super thrilled because I had it in my mind that while I thought the first movie was pretty good and I appreciated it as an adaptation of the original source material, The Hellbound Heart was uh, the novella that Clive Barker wrote. And I read that in high school, probably. It's, really? It's short. Yeah, it, it's short and it's quite good. It's dark. Clive Barker is a really interesting author. He's very different than somebody like um, Stephen King or Dean Koontz or, or any of the other kind of big, prolific horror writers. He's really got a, a very dark streak. And what I've heard about Clive Barker is that he's kind of a interesting guy. You know? <laughs> like, I didn't do as much research as I should have, so I apologize. I hope I'm not disseminating any false information, but I'm pretty sure he's a gay guy. Yeah, that's true. He's... Uh, also into, or has been at different points in his life, into some interesting drugs and some interesting behavior, including sadomasochism and and that kind of stuff. He was in part inspired by this, by some of his own experiences visiting S&M bars and, and those types of things. And you see a lot of that in his work, both as a filmmaker and as a writer. He's pretty sexually explicit, and uh, he's not afraid to push boundaries. This movie, especially for coming out in 1987, I think was pretty 
Oh gosh, I don't Different, know. Fringe, right? yeah, yeah kind, you sure. know, kind of on on the fringe of what was regular in popular culture. But anyway, getting back to your question, <laughs> I I had seen it several times, and I had it in my mind that it while it was good, it was a little bit slow and kind of boring, uh, and I thought that I preferred the first couple of sequels. But going back and watching it again, I guess it had been a really long time since I had seen it. I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I remembered enjoying it. I I actually thought that it was quite good. It is dark and scary, kind of twisted, and uh, (laughs) I I liked it. You know, I have a friend who was a producer. Uh, He isn't anymore. He's a writer now, but he was a producer for a Canadian production company, and they were doing some television series or something about different people, and he actually interviewed Clive Barker at his home, and he said it was a really trippy experience because uh, he came there, and he said he had almost like a... What do you call it? He had a lot of male servants, not servants, house servants? House boys. House boys, yeah, yeah, all around uh, for most of the time. And anyway, when he was interviewing him, now he's a painter as well. Yeah. And when he was interviewing him, he was working on a commission for Disney. Disney had commissioned Clive Barker to like design a, it was either a ride or like a whole separate add-on to one of the Disney theme parks. This would have been in the mid-90s or so. If you can imagine Disney commissioning Clive, that'd be like going to H.R. Giger and say, hey, you know, design the new Mickey Mouse ride, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep keep the dicks and vaginas to a minimum, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, like, this kind of thing, like you said, it's a little fringe, and it's not really my cup of tea, that the S&M kind of stuff, the hooks and pulleys and, and metal and the chains, and it's, 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 it's very Saw-esque as well, right? It's, yeah, it's kinda. kind of. Kind of pre-saw. It's not really my thing, but I can appreciate this movie for doing something completely different, like you said, at the time. And even since then, there hasn't been a lot in this sort of genre. I guess the other thing closest to it I could say would be H.P. Lovecraft, right? This whole idea there's this other... There's well, not really, but there's this other realm of demons that can come through or can be summoned in. I mean, summoning demons from hell isn't really a, a new thing. But somehow this movie presents this as more than hell. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the whole, the concept um, is that these, in this movie, they are referred to as Cenobites, and that carries throughout. And Cenobite really just means like members of some sort of religious organization or cult. I mean, mm. it, it, it's not necessarily negative in its connotation, but this just happens to be a dark cult or or something. And that's the thing. Like at one point, the lead Cenobite, which is what he's referred to in this movie, he eventually uh, became publicly known as Pinhead. But that really was kind of a fan nickname that just stuck and that they eventually started actually using in the films. But in this one, he's just called the lead Cenobite. He says at some point in this movie, Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. The main guy in this 
movie, Frank, seeks them out for like this ultimate sensory experience. And it's it it, it is sadomasochistic, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's so violent and bloody and painful and gross. Like, I think that just any average people would see it as being inherently negative or evil. But I think that the suggestion is that for some people, this is an experience that they seek out. You know, they want this ultimate experience in pain slash pleasure. Again, like you, like, I'm not into it. <laughs> we wouldn't Not admit it if we thing. were. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, let your freak flag fly or whatever, but I'll take my experiences with the the pleasure side. <laughs> <laughs> Not the pain as pleasure. But but it is an interesting concept, like the idea that these Cenobites are summoned. So they're, they're supposedly some demons from hell. And I was reading about this later. None of this is in the movie, but maybe it comes up in the mythos later in the in the later films, is that they're actually from a sect. Like hell has a, a, a religious order called the Order of the Gash. Uh-huh. And so these demons there in hell sort of specialize that this is part of their religiousness or their experience. It's, it's just kind of a bizarre idea, you know? I mean, it's just not... Not your typical portrayal of hell and what demons do in hell and how they are. Right. And they can be summoned by this puzzle box that this guy buys. This guy named Frank buys in the beginning of the movie uh, at a table in some unspecified, clearly not USA country, right? Like some... Right. It's the mysterious Orient. (laughs) Right. You know? Right. And so he uses this puzzle box to summon these demons. And like you said, the idea is that he's not doing it to get revenge on anybody. He's not doing it because he wants demons at his disposal. He's doing it because these demons will fulfill his pretty warped sexual pleasure sort of fantasies. And the movie does a pretty good job of portraying... I'm sorry, I said warped. In this case, it's pretty freaking warped. Yeah. But S&M is, is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's between two consenting adults. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> two or more. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he's actually portrayed as a pretty bad guy. He treats women poorly. Yes. Um, he's very violent uh, in his kind of sexual stuff. And so he's summoning these demons to give him this ultimate S&M pleasure experience. And they come, but then... What happens is he disappears. He's like taken away. And I guess the implication, although it's not clear in the film, the implication is that he's been taken down into some hellish place and been submitted and subjected to all of this, like hooks in his, in his himself and pulled basically pulled apart. Yeah. And he's gone. And it's not until later that he gets summoned back up, and the whole point of this movie is he wants to be made whole again as a human. Right. But the Cenobites are going to follow uh, after him and not let that necessarily uh, happen. So, I don't know, like, did he die? Is that what it is? Like, you, you get this experience, but then you pay for with your life? I suppose so. I mean, ultimately... It is masturbatory, really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically <laughs> what he's doing. The unforeseen consequence is that, yeah, he just literally gets completely ripped apart. And the whole franchise, you know, sticks with this motif of, like, these chains that seem to shoot out of nowhere and they have these, you know, terrible hooks and they hook into your skin and and they kind of pull at you and, and ultimately, you know, in his case, they pull him completely apart. And then the next thing that we see of him is uh, Pinhead 
kind of reconstructing his face, but then the puzzle box closes up, and the attic in which he was doing all this seemingly, which had looked like a kind of a weird torture space after all of this happens yeah. it kind of returns to normal and i'm not exactly sure what the implication is to to me what the implication was was that they were done with him mm. and he was just kind of put away somewhere and in this case seemingly like whatever was left of him which was maybe just kind of withered decomposed heart was still underneath the floorboards of that attic and so when his brother larry and his wife julia move back into the house they realize that he had been there because he's got kind of this weird gross hobo set up in the attic it's not until larry as he's moving in a mattress cuts his hand on an exposed nail and bleeds onto the floor of the attic, that blood is like a life force that starts that withered heart beating again and ultimately kind of starts to revive him slowly. It's a great scene. Oh, it's amazing. It almost looks like the floor is like soaking in or drinking up the blood and you see that heart beating and then you see this monstrous skeletal creature emerge from the floor uh, and it, it just looks great. I mean, it yeah. just, it, it looks so, it's disgusting. <laughs> like, it's, it's wet and slimy and bloody and gross and uh, it looks really good. It's a fantastic effect. And apparently when they first did this, again, this movie was on a very tight budget. They had another effect in here of, of him kind of coming out from a wall and uh, they weren't really happy with it. And this is what they did with that extra money that the studio gave them was to do this properly. And it's quite good, you know? Like you said, that heart is beating underneath the floor, that it kind of pans down and shows us, you know, beneath the floorboards. And then all this gr gross ickiness comes up. But it's it's so good. I was really shocked at how good this was for this, yeah. this kind of movie. And I feel like that's what this movie's all about, these grotesque images and these special effects. It's very much... A it turned out to be a special effects film, I think, because the acting's not bad. The actors are good. Yeah. The actors themselves are quite good. Larry is played by Andrew Robinson, and he is a veteran, even at this time, a veteran of the screen, of the of television, very recognizable. The female is played by Claire Higgins. Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, who is uh, the daughter, I think is Andrew's mm -hmm. daughter, right? She has gone on to do other things as well, but she's mostly known for this, but she's still working. I mean, e even into now. Yeah. But I will say it's probably the amateurish direction of the movie that makes everything super melodramatic. Yeah. You know, uh, the beginning of the film, when they come into this house, and this house has clearly not been used for at least a little while, but it, it just house looks like crap yeah <laughs> and they're kind of walking around and, and this is larry and frank's frank is larry's brother who's the one who killed himself who did all this stuff right like a ch their childhood house i guess right and he's like oh the house is great and you know kirsten calls and is like you got you're gonna love the house you got to come and see it and i'm just like no this house is looks like crap i mean i know it's, got, it's gonna look great someday but don't even pretend and then the whole sequence where they come in and they walk around is so long and so slow, and he really gets in their faces. And this is something that really surprised me about the cinematography of this movie, and this is what I distinctly remember from watching it the first time, is 
it's all like close-ups right not even medium shots but like we're we're in everyone's face all the time and that can be a problem <laughs> especially when you linger too long and you know you're moving around in, inside this house now they had to shoot on location because they didn't have a lot of money so that probably explains a little bit of why you know they couldn't have a lot of nice great wide and medium shots but right. it has an effect on the film that just I, I don't think it's good you know I think it highlights well, the weaknesses of the of the it just makes everything a little too melodramatic feeling like a soap I get opera. what you're saying and that didn't particularly bother me. In fact, I, I was a little bit impressed with the cinematography. You know, the fact that they actually did film this in a house. The only set piece that they used was the attic. They had a little bit more freedom to move cameras around and, and whatnot. Uh, and you can tell because there's kind of a different aesthetic when you're in that room. But otherwise, they just had to shoot in this house. And so Clive Barker has said that it really imposed a lot of restrictions because sometimes they could only fit one camera in a room with the actors. And so they couldn't get a lot of angles uh, and they couldn't do a lot of interesting things with moving the camera around. They could move it up and down a little bit, but there wasn't a whole lot they could do. And I understand what you're saying about making it a little bit melodramatic, but at the same time, I think that that works for this movie because it makes it feel intimate, I guess. Like, you're always really close to these people. Mm -hmm. And I do see the melodrama, but it's a melodramatic story, really. Because not only is there this weird hellish stuff going on but it's also a dramatic tale of this twisted love triangle yeah. we find out through flashback from Julia's perspective which by the way Claire Higgins <laughs> no relation <laughs> you wish <laughs> I just think that she does such a good job in this movie she's so wicked with all the close-ups that they do it she has such a distinct face I would classify her as a very beautiful woman but she's very unique yeah she has a very unique facial structure she has these really unique eyes kind of this piercing glare which just works really well for her character I, I think she does great uh, in this movie, even though she is, in fact, quite melodramatic. But we find out through flashbacks from her perspective that right before her marriage to Larry, Frank showed up out of nowhere uh, and seduced her. We get these semi-graphic scenes of their sexual tryst right before her marriage. In fact, they, I'll just be PC and say make love, even though it's far from that, yeah. on her wedding dress. That's right. Like, a, there's no better metaphor than that. <laughs> right, right. Clive Barker, being the guy that he is, he does not shy away from sexuality at all. But of course he was limited by the rating system and by the producers and by the studios and the sex scenes these flashback sex scenes are relatively graphic now by today's standards not really all that much but apparently you know they were conceived as being much more graphic there was supposed to be spanking and sodomy and all 
kinds of other intense sexual things going on and and they had to pare that down but you still get the intensity of this affair which apparently is something that seems to be lacking in her relationship with Larry her husband yeah. Larry is kind of the straight guy yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly and so when Frank comes back, even in this disgusting form that he comes back in, once she finds out that it's him, and and she's kind of been, just knowing that he had been there and that he might still be around, she's been having these flashbacks and lusting after him. When he does reveal himself to her, which is kind of a scary moment, she hears something in the attic, she goes up there, and this gross, slimy, skeletal hand grabs her, and she is frightened. But when he reveals himself to be Frank, she's also intrigued, and ultimately... She agrees to help him. He says that he needs blood. He said that it was Larry's blood that brought him back to the state that he's in now. And more blood will help him to continue to revive. She has to think about it for about an hour. (laughs) If even. (laughs) Right. Laying in bed with her husband, she gets up out of bed and goes back up to the attic and tells him that she will help him, and she does. And and that's kind of the thrust uh, of the movie. But there's also, I don't remember when he finally reveals it to her, but he he says, we need to hurry this up. We need to get me fixed up because they're going to be coming for me. The Cenobites. Yeah. He says, when they realize that I've escaped their prison or their grasp or whatever, they will be coming. Yeah, that's like the second half of the movie. Okay, so what she does and is she goes out and she seduces men, which is pretty easy for her. Pretty easy for any woman, really. Seduces men and brings... <laughs> <laughs> you might want to edit that out. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is men are generally scum. <laughs> that's what yeah, I'm trying okay. to say. All right, that's fair. No, so she seduces these men at, at, at these bars and brings from them back home, takes them up into the attic with a pretense of sex, and then uh, hits them over the head with a hammer a couple times to kill them or almost kill them. And then Frank basically uses their blood and their skin and everything like that to rebuild himself. Yeah. The way that this is portrayed is really interesting to me. I'm thinking about the first guy that she brings back. He's bold, but he seems like this sort of like businessman who approaches her and she's like, okay, yeah, why don't you come back to my place? They come in and they have a very uncomfortable scene. Yeah. You can tell that she's kind of like doing what she has to do, but she's not all that excited about it. She's clearly uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And probably the first time she's done something like this. And and he, you know, starts to try to make out with her right there. And then... What's the matter? what you brought me here for, isn't it? What isn't it? I suppose so, yes. So what's your problem? Let's get on with it. You're not going to change your f***ing mind, are you? I'm sorry. Let's go upstairs. Okay. Okay. In our day and age, we as men should know that when a woman shows that kind of reluctance, we need to back off. But the, it, it was an earlier time, well, not yeah. saying that that's any better. But- and they had been drinking heavily, so he was intoxicated. And I think that it just is a revelatory moment 
about his character. He's trying to be very flattering with her at first and telling her she she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, blah, blah, blah. But then when she acts like she's not going to give it up, he does snap at her like... I think yeah. it plays even better today. I, I really do, because I think it's more true and honest, maybe. Although I also feel like he's trying to... to to make it seem like these guys have it coming a little bit, or at least that guy does. Yeah, sure. There's a little bit of build here that, that whether it's intentional or not, it's kind of smart filmmaking because the first guy almost seems like he's got it coming in a way. I mean, nobody's got that coming. <laughs> but, uh, right. but, you know, he's pretty aggressive with her, so you don't feel quite as bad, you know, that she kills him. But then the next two guys, you know, are total victims. And so... I'm asking you, I was thinking about this while I was watching this movie. Do you think that her character is a villain or a victim yes. in this? Oh, a villain. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, they were painting her as a villain. One of the most interesting things to me about this movie is that what ended up being the most iconic part of this movie is Pinhead. Pinhead became the face of this entire franchise, and that was never intended in this first movie. There are one, two, three, four Cenobites in this movie. There's Pinhead, there's the female Cenobite who's got like a gash in her throat that's meant to be evocative of um, a vagina. (laughs) There is uh, the Chatterer who's got these chattering teeth, and there's a fat one that became popularly known as Butterball. In the original script, all of them had lines, a fairly equal distribution of lines. But the prosthetics for the Chatterer and for Butterball were so limiting that they couldn't speak. And so they redistributed all the lines to Pinhead and to the female Cenobite. And because of that, Pinhead kind of became the one that was most recognizable and seemingly kind of the leader of the group. Because of the popularity of the first film and because of the iconic nature of Pinhead, they put him into the forefront and allowed him to be the lead antagonist for the rest of the series. The intention was, and they anticipated, that this would probably do fairly well and would probably get a sequel. Julia was supposed to be the primary antagonist in this series. Mm. She was supposed to come back and and be the primary villain but it just didn't work out that way they do bring her back in the second film uh, and she's quite good in the second film but uh yes oh yeah i she was 100 percent meant to be a villain i think and she is wicked i think that the uh the actress does a really good job of showing her progression i mean from the beginning She's a bitch. But <laughs> that's kind of true okay. now, when you when you point it out, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's, you know, whatever. She's high strung and and you know, that's who she is. Initially, she is very reluctant to kill people. But as time goes on, and the, and Clive Barker did some really interesting things with just these long shots of 
just looking at her face or her just sitting on the couch kind of staring yeah. off into space. There's a lot of that. And after a while, she starts to like smile mm-hmm. as though she's getting into it. And at one point, she's sitting in the living room with her husband and her husband's watching boxing and he says, I can turn this off if you want. I know you say this kind of stuff kind of makes you sick to your stomach. And she goes, uh, it's fine. I've seen worse. Like she just (laughs) totally gets used to it and maybe even relishes in it a little bit. I feel like she feels empowered where she didn't before, Mm. which is gross, but understandable to some extent, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not going to feel empowered by going out and killing people, but if she was unsatisfied and felt helpless uh, in her life to wield this kind of power specifically over men, uh, it's not illogical. I I get it. It does kind of equalize her relationship with Frank, right? Because in those flashbacks, we see Frank as kind of the predator who's seducing and bringing her in, and she likes it, but she seems a little scared by it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, at this point now, she's kind of coming up to his level, and she's becoming more violent, and she's becoming more assertive as well. And that just seems to bring them both of them together even more. It gives her maybe more of a motivation, right? Mm-hmm. For bringing this slimy, gross, kind of mean character back to life because now maybe she's in a better position to receive him, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and his proclivities uh, because they're becoming her proclivities too. So it's smart in that way. You're right. I guess they're more of a dual, a dual villain in this point. But I think earlier in the film, or at least in the flashback modes, you get the sense that she's a bit of a victim that's been cajoled and lured into this web. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say she's... So? No, because I feel like she was a willing participant. Well, it's true. You're right. It's wrong for me to brush that under the rug. You know, you cheat on your husband and you chose to do it. <laughs> right? Right, so, right. yeah. And she submits. You know, like, I think that that is part of what draws her her to him is that he is so aggressive and you know in their sex play or whatever you want to call it like he pulls out a knife and you know like there's there's knife play and at one point he gets up and says something like it'll never be enough and she comes up behind him and is like please please you can do anything anything like (laughs) now i will have to say that i still feel like the way it plays out on screen is a little melodramatic like it's a little too heavy too hard like soap opera-esque and i was i thought it was a little cringy in that way thematically and everything it all kind of works but on the screen is a little too much that's okay you can feel that way (laughs) i don't i don't uh you didn't think so though you thought it worked no you thought it was convincing i thought it worked yeah, okay. I thought it worked. I, I'm not denying that it was melodramatic. It was. I'm not denying that it wasn't a little bit, you know, soapy. It was. But it didn't bother me. It worked for me. You know, it was just kind of this heightened reality that I was able to roll with. The world of the movie, you bought into it. That's fine. Well, and like you said earlier, like Andrew Rop. Robinson, who plays Larry, uh, that he's this veteran. He's been doing. I thought that he was one of the most hammy characters of all of them. Oh, for sure. Not like comedically goofy, but you know, just kind of this goofy guy, and not unlikable, and not necessarily unrealistic. Like we've been totally ignoring Kirsty because really for the first half of the movie she's just around. Like yeah. you just know that <laughs> she exists and. She might be important later, which she is. But he's with her, 
very much the dad. Yeah. There's one scene um, where they have uh, a dinner party, and he's very much the dad dinner party host. <laughs> telling the jokes kinda, and stories. Kinda, yeah, telling the jokes and stories and, and kind of goofy and a little bit over the top, but not so much so that it pulled me out of the movie. I think the reason is they just never got out of his face. I mean, if you zoom in on an actor and you let those shots linger for just a little too long and, you know, you have too many of these shots of them staring at each other or staring off into space or with the thoughts in their heads or whatever, like, there's a line and and beyond that, I think it's the director's fault, you know? I don't think it's the actor's fault. I think the director did the actor a disservice by making their performance seem hammier because they didn't give them the distance that they need. Sure. Maybe also it has to do with Clive Barker just you know, it's just his first outing. Right. He said himself, actually, he didn't. He still hates that first sequence of the film when they come in and they're walking around the house. They shot the movie pretty much in sequence, mm-hmm. and he said that that was the first sequence they shot. And he said, looking back on it now, like I remember, like that day, I just felt so out of my depth, and I I knew it was wrong at the time I was shooting it. And he said, I still look at it on the screen, and I still feel like it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, and he he admits fully he had no idea what he was doing. And he says that he was so grateful that both the cast and crew were so willing to just put up with his ineptitude because he he had no idea. You know, he was just flying by the seat of his pants. From what I read, he said that it was a good experience, but really only because everybody was so patient and kind great you know like yeah. if i were a first-time <laughs> filmmaker you're lucky to find yourself in a situation where people are willing to be patient yeah for sure because i don't think that the industry is really known for that <laughs> it must speak well to his character if he's the kind of guy that people want to be patient with right well and that's the thing like i hear such kind of weird freaky things about him but when i see him in interviews and things he seems very charismatic you know, he, he seems like somebody that I would be very much interested in sitting down and having a beer with. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing more. <laughs> not, not too many. <laughs> but he, he, I mean, he seems like a, a cool guy. You know, whatever his personal interests are, that's... Who are we to judge? Fine. Yeah. Like, right, like you said, <laughs> consenting adults, you, you do what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, eventually the daughter does get back into the picture, Kirstie, and it's really only about the second half. And I think the beginning of that is, <clears throat> I mean, she's in and out. She has this boyfriend. I don't even know his name. I, was it no, even I uttered know. in the movie once? I don't think it was. I don't either. He was kind of a throwaway character. Yeah. Uh, almost a, the obligatory boyfriend. You have to have somebody to help you through the end because we can't just let a woman do it all. Right. I think the turning point there is that uh, after, you know, mom has been acting really, really weird, uh, Larry goes out to lunch with her at a Chinese restaurant. I got a real problem here, kiddo. She doesn't even want to leave the house. Really? Could you... Would you? Uh-oh. Stop by sometime? Try to make friends? Sure. I mean, who knows? Maybe all she needs is somebody to talk to. So she does. She pops back by unannounced, and uh, she happens to stand in the driveway and see Julia bringing another man in. I, I don't know how people don't discover this creepy, <laughs> like, half-human in 
the room upstairs where they all seems to be fairly well trafficked <laughs> in this house. Yeah. But she ends up discovering him too. And, she and, sees them, Julia take the guy inside, and then she hears the attack. And when she goes to investigate, she sees the guy who's like half drained. He like comes out and begs her for help. And then Frank reveals himself and he is super creepy with her. Like he, yeah. <laughs> he has seen her before and he's like, Kirsty, like it, it, it's so lascivious and, and, and gross. He has gone from mostly skeletal to now just like skinless. Like yeah. you can see all of his muscle and, and all of that, but he still doesn't have skin. And it's great makeup. It really is. But he confronts her and he talks to her. He's like, oh, everything's going to be fine now. Uncle Frank is back. But he also, like, pins her up against the wall, and you can tell that it's lecherous. It's so gross, but it's totally in keeping with his character. Yeah. There's nothing to be afraid of. Bet you make your daddy so proud, don't you, beautiful? This isn't happening. I used to tell myself that. I used to try and pretend I was dreaming all the pain. But don't you kid yourself. Some things have to be endured. It's almost like the idea of anything taboo is what turns him on like getting down with his brother's fiance on her wedding dress the day before her wedding done but now look here's my niece just because it's taboo you know like that's yeah. that's what i that's the feeling that i get from him she's able to fight him off in some way and she picks up the box to use as a weapon. But as soon as she picks it up, he kind of freaks out and he's like, oh, put that down. And she then realizes that it's important to him. So she uses it as a diversion and says, oh, you want it? Okay, go get it. And she throws it out the window. And when he freaks out and goes and looks out the window, she runs away and she runs out and she picks it up as she goes. And then there's this kind of silly nonsense where she kind of relives no. the whole experience while she's on the street and she like passes Thanks. out and wakes no. up in a hospital. Yeah. And I didn't even really understand this. Like, did she really not remember what had just happened or was she playing it coy with the doctor? I couldn't tell. I don't know. She, yeah, I don't know. She, she starts playing with the box and it's funny because when she starts playing with it, like at first there's like this pretty music box music and like these pretty little pink sparkles are like floating out of it. And, you know, so she's intrigued. But eventually she triggers whatever it is that opens it and puts it in the configuration that brings out the Cenobites and they show up to take her just like they had taken Frank. And at first, there's like the the walls of the hospital open up and she goes down this long gothic castle looking corridor and she ends up getting chased by this weird scorpion human demon. There are scenes like this where if you really want to be picky, you can be like you can see that this is something on rollers that somebody <laughs> is standing behind and pushing. And if you look really hard, you can see that. Hmm. But I still thought that it was scary. I thought it was good, actually. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with it. But but you're right. He's got to cut back and forth a lot. I read that that 
actually that hallway because of their budget that hallway was only like 14 feet long mm. and the monster took up like seven feet of it <laughs> and then they had to have guys behind it to push it along so that was even more so he she couldn't actually run so he had her kind of like run in slow motion and and, and <laughs> jump a little bit so that her hair would move you know fly out. <laughs> and then so that's why there's so much quick cutting from that to like a close-up of him and then back to her and then back to that well with the limitations it i think that it actually looks good and yeah. i thought that it was scary she runs away from it and she gets away from it and then the cenobites that we have seen before appear and they explain to her you've opened the box you've summoned us now we take you and we you know give you all these experiences and and blah 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 and she makes a deal yeah. um she says you've done this before do you know frank cotton and they're like oh yeah we know she says well I'll, I'll make a deal with you. He's escaped you, and apparently they don't know that. I can lead you to him. They basically, well, they don't really agree. They say, okay, fine, take us to him, and then we'll see. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines, well, there are a couple right here. Uh, there's the, we're demons to some, angels to others. And then she's crying, and Pinhead says to her, tears please it's a waste of good suffering and <laughs> then great. she makes the deal and he says okay but if you cheat us we'll tear your soul apart like <laughs> and Doug Bradley plays uh, Pinhead in this movie and, and in most of the sequels he eventually retired it and they recast him and, and I've seen I've seen all the sequels and the guys that they've used to replace him are not bad, but, you know, it, it's like trying to replace Brad Dorif as Chucky or trying to replace mm. Robert England as Freddie. Like, you know, the guy is the character. And I just think he's so good uh, in this role. And he's a theater actor and a film actor, but he started in the theater and he was friends with Clive Barker. And when they were casting this movie, he was invited to be a part of it, and they gave him a choice. They said, you can play the lead Cenobite, who, in its conception, had very few lines, because they were distributed between all the Cenobites, or you can play one of the mattress movers mm -hmm. from the beginning of the movie. And he almost chose the mattress mover, because he felt like, as an actor, it was important that people see his face, his real face. But eventually he decided to go with this and it became his most iconic role and, you know, one of the iconic roles in the horror genre. Being a theater actor, you know, he had a lot of skill and talent and Clive Barker had to tell him, you need to tone everything down and really focus on stillness because your character has to have this complete confidence that he is ultimately in control so there's no reason for heightened emotion right you are the bad boss and you know it and so that's what he does you know he basically just stands there yeah you know, there there's <laughs> there's very little movement at all and it's all done through very subtle nuances in his face and especially through his voice and I, I just think that it was really powerful. I, I'm yeah. not surprised that people clung to that character 
uh, as kind of the centerpiece of this movie and ultimately the franchise. Yeah, I don't think we'd ever seen anything quite like that before. It's a really unique look. And he's lucky he he also he, he got his voice in that too because the movie originally took place in Britain and then once the studio realized what they had on their hands, they needed it to be marketable in the United States. And so right. they actually dubbed over some of the other characters with other more American accents and they ended up keeping his uh, which was a yep. smart move, I think, because yep. yeah, he delivers those lines just chillingly. Yeah, what a bunch of happy, you know, sometimes this is the way with films, right? Like a bunch of little happy accidents have and the limitations that you have to work around end up somehow turning out in your favor. Right. You know? and, uh, and you get something that ends up being bigger than what you originally envisioned um, and a focus that you didn't even plan. So, yeah, so anyway, there's a... Um, uh, oh, she goes back. She goes back to the house and... I mean, Larry's dead, right? Right. Or, or there's no scene really about his death, is there? Well, kind of. I mean, there was an earlier scene in the movie where Frank wanted to kill Larry and Julia said no. Yeah. I'll get you other guys, but you can't kill him. But then after Kirsty witnesses all this, they both realize what a threat this poses to them from a legal perspective <laughs> uh, because she's going to tell everybody. And so though it's not stated outright through the performance, you can tell that she concedes that he can kill Larry. And we don't you don't see it. You just see uh, Julia say to Larry, I don't even know where to begin how to tell you this, and then it cuts away. What's suggested is that she then takes Larry upstairs to Frank, who then not only drains him the way that he's drained everybody else, but skins him and puts on his skin like a skin suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when Kirsty comes home, she's relieved to find that her dad is still alive, um, even though he's not, it's really Frank in Larry's skin, which I still kind of don't really understand how she didn't recognize that yeah. anything was wrong because you can see it's pretty it. obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looks like he's been skinned, you know, like, you know, all <laughs> so around together. his hairline is all bloody. And but then she figures it out when Frank once again starts getting gross with her and says his catchphrase come to daddy and she realizes what's going on and then there's this whole kind of chase thing through the house eventually julia gets a hold of kirsty and frank goes to stab kirsty but kirsty frees herself just in the nick of time and instead he stabs julia and he drains her pretty quickly. Yeah, and she says like, "Not me." And he's like, "Oh, sorry, nothing personal." <laughs> <laughs> Which you know is totally mean, but you know she deserves it. So yeah. And then he chases her all through the house, which I thought actually went on for a little bit too long. It, it did kind of silly. I didn't understand why she didn't just run into where she knew the Cenobites were. You know, like, because they had already confronted her in the attic. She wanted to see Larry's, Frank's dead body. And they took her up there and they showed. But, of course, he was all skinned and stuff, so she didn't really know. And the Cenobites appeared to her and said, we want the man who did this. And she said, no, you can't. That's my dad. That wasn't the deal. Well, it wasn't her dad. She yeah. doesn't 
know yet, but then she figures it out. But anyway, she knows that they were up there, so I don't understand why she didn't just lead him directly to them. Instead, yeah. runs around and hides in the house for a while. Well, not only that, she like runs around and then she just stops and just weeps at the top of the stairs. <laughs> like uh-huh. that's how she gets caught eventually by Frank, which is so stupid. Yeah, it was silly. But eventually they end up back in the attic, and he is nasty with her, but the Cenobites show up, which surprises him, and their chain hooks show up and grab him, and there's this iconic image of him with his skin all stretched out across his face, and even in that state, he's still gross, he still looks at Cursey, excuse me, and like licks his lips, and says, Jesus wept. Which wasn't the original line. The written line was "fuck you." <laughs> yeah, but he said that, and they kept it, and it, it again became one of the iconic moments um, from the movie. And so the Cenobites have him, but they are not going to go through with their deal. Yeah, Pinhead says to her, "We have such sights to show you." And then they chase her around for a while, but she gets her hands somehow back on the puzzle box, and she keeps maneuvering it, and like almost every time somebody almost gets her, she re-maneuvers it, and it, I don't know, kills them, them sends them back to hell or or whatever. But she does that with, with all of them, and her stupid, worthless boyfriend shows up for no good reason, and really does nothing to help. There was no reason for, she didn't, he did nothing for her. No, nothing. But uh, they eventually escape all of them. And the film was criticized for the effects in the last part of the movie. There's a lot of like light, not like lasers. Animated. uh, Well, I mean, that's what it was. They, They ran out of money for effects. And so Clive Barker and one other guy who worked on the film over a weekend hand animated all of these effects over the the film. I didn't think it looked bad. I, didn't think I mean, especially for the, time, for the time. I thought it, it looked, looked fine. Like most movies do, honestly. I'm kind of surprised that these two guys just did it over a weekend, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I thought it looked fine. But anyway, they escaped. I didn't mention, because it's... I don't even know what to say about it. But this creepy guy has been following Kirstie around for the whole movie. And at the very end of the movie, the whole house burns down. And then they show Kirstie and her boyfriend in, like this in this lot with like these fires burning like it's supposed to be the remains of the house. <laughs> it so doesn't look like a house is burned down at all. Convincing. <laughs> right. But she takes the box and she throws it into the fire. And then this creepy guy shows up again and reaches into the fire and pulls the box out and he catches on fire and he burns all up and after he's burned up what is left is this big skeletal demon that's horned and winged and it flies away with the box right in front of them and then it cuts back to does it cut back to the first scene like is the implication supposed to be that this is like a time loop kind of deal no i think or is it is it supposed to be the same it's a new guy guy is selling the box to a different guy yeah i think it's the same guy selling the box to a different guy like this is just going to repeat over and over again this is what happens the box ends up in the seller's hand and then yeah somebody else gets a hold of it 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I ended up enjoying this more than I thought that I was going to. I, I It was better than I remembered it being, at least I, I think so. It, it spawned, I, I, again, I don't remember how many sequels, but I feel like it's eight, maybe something like that. It's a lot. There are a lot of sequels. The second one... Kirsty and Julia both return, and it's a little bit bigger in terms of scope and special effects, and I really like the second one. I've watched it multiple times. The third one is kind of in line with the same continuity, but Julia and Kirsty don't appear, but I, I did enjoy the third one. After the third one, almost, well, I think all of the sequels after the third one they ended up just using shelved scripts that had nothing to do with Hellraiser, and they just injected the Cenobites into them. Oh, really? Yeah, and called them uh, Hellraiser films. I've seen them all. I've watched every single one of them. And they're okay, most of them, from an entertainment you know, perspective. But... <sighs> The Cenobites, the, you know, the nature of the Cenobites changes, their purpose kind of changes, and usually in most of them, the Cenobites only appear briefly, which is, you know, disappointing because that's kind of what you're in it for. You know, another one just came out, Judgment just came out last year, and I've seen it, and, well, excuse me, I've seen half of it because I haven't been able to get all the way through it. <laughs> it's it's very it's very different. The Cenobites are still around, but they're kind of different in nature. Um, and the selling point for the most recent one for me was that Heather Langenkamp of Nightmare on Elm Street fame is in it. Oh wow! And she gets and she gets top billing. Wow! And she's in it for less than forty five seconds. And she plays a completely non-essential character, and she is covered in age makeup. She's virtually unrecognizable. <laughs> so it was a major tease and <laughs> made me really mad. So wow. I haven't uh, been able to get through it. And the reason that there have been so many sequels in part is because this is one of those movies that has gotten tied up in studio business. The studio doesn't want to lose its rights yeah. to the film. So they have to keep making them. Right. So they have to keep making them in order to maintain their rights. There have been talks uh, for years about a remake or reimagining of the original. Uh, Clive Barker has written a script uh, for a remake slash reimagining of the original, and that was in pre-production for a while and then it just fell apart because of studio business. Um, so who knows what will happen. This I, I, I am certain that the franchise is not dead. It's going to be around for a while. What direction it goes in, I have no idea, but uh, it's going to be around. Well, I'm kind of surprised, Craig, that I know this uh, before you do, but uh, it was announced just this month, actually, that uh, it is going to be uh, rebooted. Is it? Yeah, David S. Goyer is going to write and produce. Oh, he directed Blade. Uh, Trinity, he's the one who wrote uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Mm. He wrote the Man of Steel movie. So he, he's a pretty well-respected writer. It'll be interesting to see something like this in his hands. I was surprised to hear you know, that Clive Barker is not going to have a whole lot to do with it. I mean, maybe he'll have something to do with it, but he's not going to write it in any case. Well, so. I'll just say I'll believe it when I see it, because yeah. <laughs> that that has been announced 
at least two or three times, you know, with different people behind it. I hope it's true. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it would be great to see a reimagining of it. Um, I would love, you know, Doug Bradley's pretty old at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but if they could get him back in the makeup, uh, I would love to see him return to the role. I don't know. I, I kind of doubt that's going to happen, not. but, yeah. but uh, I'm up for reimagining too, you know, let somebody else helmet. And, you know, there've been all kinds of, speculations about what they will do like um making pinhead a woman or having an entirely new uh set of cenobites i I don't know i'd be down for it i would be happy to see it get more back to its roots Mm. because a lot of the sequels really stretch it this movie I liked. I would. I would certainly recommend it. If you're a horror fan and you haven't seen it, what is wrong with you? Um, but if you haven't, see it. It's 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 good. And the source material. Read the novella. The novella is really good. Yeah, I'm actually curious to do that now that you mention it. Uh, I want. I want to get out and read some of Clive Barker's stuff. I've never read a single thing he's written, but oh, he has some really good stuff. Really. Oh my gosh. Uh, the Books of Blood were uh, a collection of short stories that he did in like. I don't know how many volumes. Oh, man, some excellent short stories in there. And then he's also done some really cool um, young adult stuff Mm. and youth stuff. There was a book called The Thief of Always, which reads very much like a children's book. I mean, it's it's more young adult, but it's almost fairy tale-like. Um, and I love, love, love that book. There's, gosh, there's another one. I'm looking at my bookshelves as I'm talking, trying to find <laughs> it, um, but I can't find it. But he did a, another young adult series, Arabot, I think, uh, is what it was called. Uh, and it was really good. He's an excellent writer. You definitely need to read some of his stuff. I will. I will. I, as for the movie, you know, I felt I I agree with you. I think that if you're a horror fan, you need to see it. The special effects are really quite good, even for you know for their time and just beyond. I think they're good. It's very much a special effects movie. I think the whole notion and the idea of it, the themes that it explores, are really different from a lot of horror movies. The knock on it, I would have to say, is that it's a little claustrophobic. It mostly just takes mm. place in one house, mm-hmm. and uh, and like I said, it's kind of in everyone's face all the time it's a little melodramatic i i I imagine a reboot is going to fix all of those kinds of things sure uh, sure. and uh and that'll be interesting to see so I'll, i'll look forward to it as well me too all right thank you again for listening if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend we have a facebook page you can just search for two guys in a chainsaw find us there like us write some kind of comment about what you thought of this episode as well as any of the other episodes we've done in the past you can also find those on our website twoguys.red40net.com. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.